If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. What is our relationship with other species? And can we care about animals if we eat them? On today's episode, we're discussing the morality of our relationship with animals, and we're joined remotely by four leading thinkers, world-renowned moral philosopher Peter Singer, honorary associate in philosophy at the Open University, Christopher Belshaw, former assistant editor of The Times, Marianne Seacart, and British actor and longtime vegan, Peter Egan. For me, what's important is whether creatures are sentient beings, whether they can feel something. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's discussion, Miriam Francois. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Kicking off, if I could ask Peter Singer, are we hypocritical in the way that we treat animals? I certainly think we are hypocritical if we say that we love animals, because, in fact, we're extremely selective in the animals we love. And this is based purely on whether they appeal to us, whether they're the animals that we want to have in the home as companion animals, or perhaps in some cases, they're animals that we like to observe in their wild habitat. But uh, if while we do this, we're eating uh, pigs and cows and chickens, then we certainly don't love animals as such, because uh, especially if we're simply buying them at the supermarket from the the cheapest kind of products, we're buying factory farmed animals, which means that we're complicit in the utterly miserable lives that they have had to endure in order to be turned into uh, flesh for us to eat or the eggs that uh, commercially raised industrialized hens are laying or the milk that uh, cows are producing. Uh, None of these products are produced with real concern for the animals. They're produced with simply the bottom line at stake. Uh, Many years ago, Ruth Harrison said in a book called uh, Animal Machines, cruelty is acknowledged only where profitability ceases. And although there have been some reforms since then in terms of legislation, unfortunately, that's still the bottom line. If you can do something to an animal that makes it more productive, makes it cheaper to produce its product, then that's what's going to be done. And that is certainly not showing love for animals. Um, Christopher, are we hypocritical in the way we treat animals? 
Well, unlike Noah, I don't want to put all animals in the same boat. They're enormously different from each other in ways relevant to how we treat them and feel about them. People are different as well. Some of us are hypocrites and others are not. Nor is love all of the same kind. I might love cats in one way and oysters in quite another. Is there hypocrisy in loving some animals and eating others? Or worse, loving and eating the same animal? It might appear so. The doggy person enjoys a chicken curry. The farmer loves the lamb, but then later eats the sheep. But I'm not sure that hypocrisy is really the main concern. The friend of animals might say that if you love these cute little bunnies, you wouldn't put them on the barbecue. But this friend is likely to say also, and more simply, you shouldn't eat them whether or not you love them. Suppose they do say this. Is it true? Well, I want to say no, it's not true. So they'll at least want to defend some forms of meat eating and at least some among the meat eaters. You can eat animals without being a hypocrite. More important, you can eat animals or some animals without doing anything wrong. Or better, nothing wrong so far as these animals are concerned. Maybe we shouldn't eat animals for health reasons or for the sake of the environment. Maybe also for the sake of other animals. It's bad for the duck if we eat the ducklings. It's bad for cats, they'll be next, if we start eating dogs. But I want to say that you can eat the rabbit without doing what it is bad for or wrong to the rabbit. So how's the argument go? We'll start with roadkill. You don't cause an animal's death or cause it any pain. You're neither wronging nor harming the animal if you eat it. Imagine next that you shoot and immediately painlessly kill later to eat an unsuspecting pigeon. Does this harm it? Well, absolutely it does, but not all harms are wrong. We want to live on, care about this, have interests in the future. Most animals don't want this. They don't care. They don't have these interests. For that reason, and I know this is controversial, I want to say it's not bad for them and we don't wrong them if we cause them a sudden and painless death. Maybe the painless death is a fantasy. So you're not a great shot. You cause death with some pain. Are there reasons not to do this? Absolutely there are. But these reasons can be outweighed. You're driving the car and there's some stuff in the road and you can kill, not painlessly, the rabbit or the children. Most of us will kill the rabbit. Or you kill the rabbit or the deer. Or one rabbit versus a whole warrantful. But this outweighing isn't straightforward and you might think that the slim pleasure of eating can't justify any pain in killing. I want to disagree, but certainly the amount matters and there isn't any justification for the massive pain involved in factory farming. We're probably all going to agree about that. But it's different where the pain is smaller. So some pain. But we can ask, what's the alternative to this shortish, give me half a minute, shortish life with a quickish but pain-free death? For farm animals, the alternative is no life at all. If we don't eat them, they don't exist. For wild animals, it's a somewhat longer but still short life with probably a considerably more painful death. For these animals, unlike many that we love, there's no credible story where they get a good life, a good long life and a happy death. And that's why it can be okay to eat them. And that's why animal liberation is, I think, sometimes a dodgy term. Okay, thank you very much for laying out that position. Uh, Peter Egan, are we hypocritical in the way we treat animals? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I certainly was anyway. 
And I think it's, uh, if there can be accidental hypocrisy, um, I think it's related to that. It's, um, I always thought, thought that I was a very compassionate person and uh, that I loved all animals. Um, but in fact, I discovered through my journey, caring about animals and loving them as much as I do, that uh, really what I was a, a speciesist, what is called as a speciesist, um, until I actually had a, 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 a sort of light thunderbolt moment um, when I realized that I believe firmly that all animals have a right, the same right as I have to a good life and a comfortable life without any kind of cruelty. And uh, it, that happened a long time. I've been rescuing dogs for about um, 20 years. Um, and I was a meat eater at the same time as rescuing loads of dogs and loving these dogs and getting that fantastic serotonin kind of boost whenever I related to them. And my sense of well-being, being with my dogs, was absolutely unparalleled by anything. It was just absolutely wonderful. And um, I, I was asked to become um, an ambassador to a charity, Animals Asia, um, by a wonderful woman called Jill Robinson. And she introduced me to a film called Earthlings. And I watched this film called Earthlings. And it's the most devastating um, journey for all animals in terms of being produced for, for the table. Um, and it shocked the life out of me and made me realize that, in fact, I was, in fact, a hypocrite because I hadn't actually spread. Um, I had very selective compassion and I hadn't spread it to all animals. Um, I think that uh, all animals have a part to play uh, on our planet, uh, apart from those that are selected for intensive animal farming. And the crazy thing about that is that we are producing a situation where the meat that carnivores are eating is in fact destroying our planet, as we all know, so beautifully described in um, David Attenborough's um, film the other night, Extinction. Um, so yes, I do believe there is a huge amount of hypocrisy. I think it's accidental hypocrisy. I think if people were, were informed in the broadest possible way of the great value that all species contribute to our wonderful planet and how we are destroying our planet by producing a species that is also colluding with us to destroy our planet. So yes, I believe there is hypocrisy. I don't think it's always knowingly, uh, no hypocrisy, you see what I mean? Yeah, uh, thanks for that. Uh, Marianne, are we hypocritical in the way we treat animals? Well, I think it's perfectly consistent to love animals, but also to eat them and keep them as pets. As long as the animals have had a reasonably happy life, I don't think we need to feel guilty about doing either. So in other words, as long as we're treating them humanely, they may even have a better and easier life than they would have in the wild because we're feeding them and we're taking them to the vet when they're ill. And if they're pets, we're showing them love and affection, which they often return. And you only have to look at pet cats and see how much healthier they are with their sort of glossy coats, they're well-fed, they're dewormed than a stray cat is. But what about eating them? Well, humans are natural omnivores. So I don't see how it can be wrong to do what is natural to us. And all the way down the food chain, animals eat other animals. And I don't see why it should be any different for humans. I mean, of course, I completely respect the choices that vegetarians and vegans make, but I don't think that we should all feel morally obliged to follow suit. We are, though, moral creatures in a way that other animals aren't. So for me, there are two important moral precepts here. 
first of all, as I said, we shouldn't keep animals in inhumane conditions. And I think we all agree with this, that causing unnecessary suffering to a creature that can feel pain is wrong. So that's why I'm against factory farming, as, as the rest of the panel are. I think that animals that we raise for food should be able to lead lives free from pain and psychological torture. And if that means we have to pay more for our meat and eat it less often, then absolutely fine. I think that the farming methods that have allowed us to eat meat incredibly cheaply are pernicious, but I'm perfectly happy to eat free range chicken or eggs. And as Christopher said, if we stopped eating meat, these cows and sheep and pigs and chickens wouldn't even exist. So would that be better morally for them? And the other moral precept is our obligation to look after the planet for future generations, which is why we should all cut down on red meat consumption because of its contribution to climate change. So I think that red meat should go back to being an occasional luxury as it used to be, not just an everyday part of our diet. I think we are hypocritical in some respects in our attitudes to animals. So why, for instance, here in Britain, are we quite happy to eat cows, but not horses? In France, they're perfectly happy to eat a steak de cheval. Why is it worse to eat dogs than pigs, given that pigs are more intelligent? Why do we privilege cute animals over ugly ones? And why do we poison rats, but not squirrels? So there's a lot to unpack here, but I still believe it's perfectly justifiable to care for your cockapoo and still enjoy the odd burger. Thank you so much uh, to all of our speakers for laying out their position. Um, first of well, as you say, lots to unpack, lots of food for thought there in, in those initial pictures. First thing I want to explore is what our relationship is with other species. We love them, we fear them, we wear them, we eat them. So my first question, which I'd like uh, Christopher to kick off with, if that's okay, is what is our relationship with other species? How do you see it? The first thing is I think that I, I, I'm not happy about putting talking about all animals together as though there are not important differences between them. And Peter talked about being a speciesist. Um, because he distinguished between animals. But I think we should distinguish between animals. I think it's weird to have, I mean, we are animals ourselves, right? Human beings are animals. It's weird to think we have the same relationship to human beings as to fish, as to mosquitoes. It's really important that we make these distinctions between animals. And so the relationships, that in, one, in that important sense, I think our relationships differ and should differ. In another sense, I want to say that there's, there's a sameness about the relationship, and that is that our relationship is one, in some sense, of being in control, right? We are we're the kind of mass species on this planet. We do very bad things. We can do some good things. We're, in a sense, responsible for what happens to all animals, and we need to think about that responsibility, take it seriously, and, and do our best. Um, Peter, can I pick up? Well, yeah, with you on that one. Um, what is the basis for this different treatment of different animals? I mean, Marianne mentioned, you know, some of them are cute and we seem to take a different approach to those that we think are, are dirty, um, you know, nuisances. So, so on what basis do we have this sort of hierarchy uh, in, in our engagement with different species? So, you know, I don't really disagree with what uh, Chris just said then. Um, it's certainly true that we have different relationship with different animals. Um, I think his first uh, comment, he mentioned oysters. Um, I, I think oysters are probably not sentient beings. Uh, for me, what's important is whether creatures are sentient beings, whether they can feel something, whether there's a sense of, sense of, uh, of whether there's a center of consciousness there. And looking at the oysters 
sensory system, its nervous system. Um, it seems to me hard to believe that oysters are, are sentient beings, that they feel pain. So in that sense, you know, I don't think we do have to worry so much about what we're doing to oysters any more than we have to worry about what we do to lettuces um, if they can't feel something. So it's true that the category animal is just too broad. It um, almost certainly includes some beings who are not sentient beings and therefore to whom we don't have moral obligations. But um, where, we, where, where we are dealing with animals who are conscious, then I think our relationship is often one of dominance, again, as, as Chris said, but I think it, it ought to be one of consideration of their interests for what they are. Now, that's not to say, it's again not to deny what uh, Chris has said, that, that we are beings who plan for the future more in, in ways that animals don't, and those things make a difference. But if we're talking about similar interests, like the capacity to feel pain, and we can imagine similar intensities of pain in different beings, I think our relationship should be one of equal concern for the pain itself. The pain is pain, uh, never mind which species is experiencing it. And it's speciesism, in my view, to discount the pain of another being because it's not human, because it's not a member of our species. But it's also speciesism to say, um, I care about the pain of dogs, but I don't care about the pain of pigs. Um, since, as uh, I think Marianne just said, you know, the pigs are arguably more intelligent than, than dogs are. So um, I think that we can be speciesist both in terms of preferring humans and in terms of selectively preferring those beings who we like or live with or find cute um, as against those that we eat where we don't have those sorts of relationships. Marianne, so consciousness and uh, the extent to which the animals can feel pain should determine our relationship to animals. What do you, what do you say to that? Well, I think there is a hierarchy of sentience, obviously between the oyster and the dog, for instance, but also between the dog and the human being. And I think Peter Singer believes that we shouldn't eat animals because uh, there, is a, there should be an equality of rights between animals and humans. And I think the hierarchy goes further up because humans are unlike any other animals. They're capable of reflective reasoning. You know, we have the capacity to be critically self-aware. We can manipulate concepts, concepts, sorry, we use a sophisticated language. And, and importantly, we can sort of reflect and plan and deliberate and accept responsibility for acting. And that makes us very different from any other animal. So I think if you accept a hierarchy of sentience between different types of animals, why not a hierarchy between animals and humans? Peter Egan, can I bring you in on that one? Yeah, um, I just want to refer back to oysters from what Pete was saying. Um, I, I was amazed to learn that oysters filter something like 300 liters of seawater a day. So they seem to be serving a great purpose um, as just as a function in terms of cleansing what is an increasingly dirty sea. Um, uh, I believe um, at this time in my life and for the last 10 years, um, because I was very much a hypocrite, I believe that all animals have the same rights as I have, regardless of a higher grade of uh, intellectual understanding. 
and, and how much we can achieve intellectually on our planet. I believe that all um, animals, all creatures have the same right to a, a life that I want, which is one of, of, of peace and happiness and generosity and compassion. They don't get that in the wild. So they don't get a life of peace and compassion and happiness and love. We know that specifically. I mean, because we do see only through hidden cameras the extraordinary relationships that wild animals have. They are constantly interrupted by human populations who are disturbing their privacy. So if it were not for us, the uh, alpha intellect, um, imposing ourselves on their wild in habitat, um, perhaps their lives would be much more peaceful. Well, no, because they, are, because they are threatened by predators themselves or other animals, even if humans aren't in the picture, they still lead lives of danger and fear. Yes, but that's, that's a part of a natural process. Um, what we are imposing on it is an unnatural process. I'm much more in favor of natural processes than unnatural ones. Um, can I bring the panel back to one point here about the humans as being the top of the hierarchy of consciousness, which I think is, is something, uh, Christopher, you would, you would defend that, would you? The idea that there's something unique about us which makes us at the top of this hierarchy of, of human consciousness and therefore able to determine in a way not just who dies but who suffers and to what extent. And, and I'd want to put that to you in the context of certain... Um, species, I'm thinking particularly of uh, animals like orcas, uh, who've got particularly uh, developed uh, frontal lobes, and, and sort of some people suggest that they're actually more sophisticated when it comes to social interactions than our own. Um, are we are we unique and 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 therefore in some sort of um, almost godlike position to determine who dies and who suffers when it comes to the other species we interact with? Um, I think orcas can determine to some extent who dies and who suffers because I've, I've seen David Attenborough and I've seen the orcas chasing, chasing the penguins and made me sad for the penguins. Um, I, I, there's one thing about the word hierarchy, the top of the hierarchy that concerns me. I, there's a sense in which I think in one sense we're the top of the hierarchy, but that doesn't mean that we're best or superior. I think because we're the top of the hierarchy, we have this awful responsibility for looking after the world. We have, we have these burdens upon us to get things right. It's not we're the top so we can do what we want, quite the opposite. Anybody else want to come back on that? Yeah, I'd like to come in on that because um, I, I'm really agreeing with Chris that as a matter of descriptive fact, it seems evident that we do have the power to determine life or death for vastly more animals than uh, any other animal does. You know, maybe orcas can for penguins, but they certainly can't for us and they can't for the vast number of animals that we have the power to destroy um, and even drive into extinction if we want to do so. But I don't think anything ethical follows from that. Um, and in fact, you know, even if you think that in some sense this is the natural order of things, as I think uh, Marianne was suggesting, I don't think anything follows from the fact that certain things are, are natural or in our nature. You know, maybe war is in our nature as well. It's certainly gone on for as long as anyone knows, but uh, we want to stop it if we possibly can. And I think that's also true of uh, relations with animals. We've exploited them in various ways, no doubt, for a very long time. And it's true, I'd accept, as Marianne said, I think we are by nature omnivores, but we also have uh, the, the possibility of making moral choices. And now, anyway, we can very easily make choices not to eat animals. We have a vast array of alternatives. And when I say we, I'm talking about people in affluent countries who can walk into a supermarket and find these alternatives. I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, people will bring up, uh, what about if you're the Inuit living uh, in Alaska, you know, hunting? Uh, I'm not talking about those people. Um, 
that they're in a different category, I think. But if we have these choices, then I think we should exercise these choices in the best way we can. Um, and I have made the point when I spoke that this particularly means eliminating factory farms. And it's good to see that the whole panel seems to agree with that. I think that's really important progress. But we should realize that we're still a, a very small minority of people in doing that and that the vast majority of animals raised for food are raised in factory farms. And we're talking about uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization said 74 billion animals raised and killed for food each year, about 10 times the human population of the world raised and killed each year. And um, that the great majority of them are in factory farms. So that's really the issue that we ought to be all very concerned about, whether we ourselves are able to eat animals that are not factory farmed. That's you know, almost a, a small point compared to the horrors that are going on on such a vast scale to so many animals. Marianne, I can see you want to jump in there. Can I, Peter, can I ask you a question? For animals uh, which are farmed humanely, so free range, uh, do you think it's better that they shouldn't exist in the first place? You know, if we all stopped eating uh, well-reared animals, they wouldn't be bred in the first place. Is that better for them morally? I, I think this is really a, one of the deeper and more difficult philosophical questions. Um, that is whether it's good to bring a being into existence if it can have a positive life. And I certainly think it's, it's perfectly, you know, there are perfectly reasonable people who have argued, yes, that is the case. And therefore, if the animals do have a good life, if they're killed painlessly or relatively painlessly, and of course we should say, if they're not, say, grass-fed beef contributing to climate change, um, then you could say it's not a bad thing for the animals that they existed. Um, so that's why I, I, I am, you know, much, as I said, much less concerned about that than about the reality of what's going on and what most people are eating, uh, how those animals lived and died. Egan, you wanted to jump in there. Oh, only to say that, I mean, there's no reason why animals can't be bred to look to kind of serve the land and live out their lives doing that. It's an economic uh, imperative that is, steps in. What, you know, what is the value of a, of a land animal? Because um, I, I, I keep repeating, uh, I am completely now against um, killing any animals. Um, and so, uh, but it doesn't mean you can't have a cattle. It doesn't mean you can't have cows. It doesn't mean you can't have pigs or, or chickens. They will just serve a different purpose. And incidentally, if, um, referring Mary to cutting back on red meat, in fact, the, the, the greatest amount of uh, food produced now for, for, for eating is chicken and pig. So already the, the red meat production is decreasing, but white meat is increasing and creating the same devastating effects on the planet. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Um, 
Right, I want to I want to move um, the debate on to our next question, if I may. But I do want to uh, at some point come back to this question of um, sort of uh, changing the the meat industry and this idea that you know maybe if we uh, change the practices, which would render uh, the cost of meat just a little bit more expensive, that that's a hit we're prepared to take. And I just sometimes wonder is that um, a sort of form of elitism when it comes to the food that we eat basically we're saying you know the consequence is likely to be that poorer families poorer children will not be able to get meat will not be able to purchase uh, meat on a regular basis if at all and wealthier households would do and so I'm just wondering to what extent that argument itself may not be um, a sort of classist uh, approach to uh, a classist solution to the to the problem anyone uh, feel free to, to come back at some point. But we do have to move on to our next question, which is, can you love animals if you keep them as pets and eat them? So from a young age, um, most of us develop a strong and lasting bond uh, and, and compassion for the animals that we encounter. Um, I know that my uh, son is currently having a, a love affair with his kitten. Um, and, and we know that you know in society, animal abusers are seen as heartless monsters, whilst the depiction of animal suffering in films or TV prompts a uniquely powerful emotional response. But do we actually care? Um, maybe to this one, Marianne, do you wanna kick us off? Yes, well, as I said earlier, I think you can as long as you treat them well. And I think as long as their lives have been happy and you've treated them humanely, I don't think there's anything problematic about eating them in the end. Uh, so I, I, I'm not opposed to people having animals, having companion animals, if they look after them well and if they really treat them as part of the family and think of their interests. Um, I'm not uh, at all opposed to that. Uh, but in terms of eating them, uh, you know, while in theory I can see that the argument that says that uh, they wouldn't have existed otherwise and they can have good lives, I think that um, it's difficult really to be confident that that is happening, that we're not slipping back in various ways into the if you like the imperatives of the market forces that um, people have to produce their products at a price that's competitive. And even if that's within a certain category of animals who are better treated, uh, it's still going to be the case. And certainly there have been exposures of what were not the factory farms that have shown that there is animal suffering going on. So I'm dubious about how you actually do this, you know, and I'm not saying that it's completely impossible, um, but I think it really, you know, would require uh, vigilance uh, and I'm, you know, I don't know that that's really going to achieve it. I, I also think it's good to set an example of saying, look, um, I'm not going to use animals for food because we don't need to. Uh, we have other ways of doing it, of, of eating well. And uh, I think it's better to just, you know, take this clearer stance and say, uh, I don't think that the animals are uh, there, you know, to eat. Um, that seems to me to make the point that, uh, you know, much, much clearer and people understand that better than drawing fine lines between this kind of animal rearing and, and that kind of animal rearing. Um, Christopher, is it cruel to keep pets? Well, it's a good question. I think, I think often it is. I mean, I'm, I'm agreeing with Peter, Peter Singer, right, on a, on a great deal. I think, I hope that's clear. And I'm agreeing with him that what matters is, is animal pain. Um, we, we're all going to agree that there's some pain in, 
involved in most cases in eating animals and I agree with Peter that we should we, we need to be careful about this but we need to be careful also about the amount of pain involved in keeping animals as pets I mean the puppy farms that, that's a problem the way people overfeed their pets that's the problem we're, we're not no one is suggesting that we should cut down on pets because they can be abusers but they can be abusers and um, that's something to take into account I don't know how little ponies are treated, you know, that people buy ponies because they love animals and then basically discard them. There's a lot, there's a lot to be concerned about in, in the pet business. Um, well, it's, it's a, a peculiar one, this, because people have, are we talking about specifically cats and dogs? Because there are awful amount of exotics that come into the UK about a million a year and uh, which is an important part of the conversation I, I would definitely bring those in yeah if we're talking about keeping a you know king cobra in your bedroom 75 percent of those exoticas die um within the first year of being imported but i mean i i've visited the dog meat farms in south korea and the extreme markets in indonesia where um which are precisely like the markets where um this current pandemic occurred and I, I, you see all kinds of animals, some that we would all regard as pets um, and exotics that others would regard as pets. Um, they are all brutally killed in the most horrific, unhygienic and disgusting manner. And in, in South Korea, in the, um, on the dog meat farms, the life of these dogs is just horrible. And, there is a strange kind of schism that occurs. I spoke to two farmers who had dogs as pets and they were producing dogs for meat. And I said, um, would you eat your pet? And they said, oh, no, 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 I, I know. If I wanted to eat my pet, if I wanted to eat a dog, I'd go to a dog meat restaurant or I'd, eat, or I'd kill one of my dogs from one of my cages. So there is a strange kind of, um, schism, as far as that is concerned. Uh, this doesn't answer your question about um, should we keep animals as pets um, it, it, in the right manner. But the reason why I, I believe that you, we shouldn't be killing any animals is because there is no pleasant death. And I don't think we have a right to do that. But I do think we have a right if an animal chooses to be a companion um, and that certainly happens with most dogs and most cats. Um, and you are not imposing a huge restriction on it. That's why my dogs are so badly behaved, because I allow them to be themselves quite a lot. Um, I can see no reason in, in, in not um, having in your home a companion animal that you treat with the greatest respect in a very dimensioned way and do not believe that you own it. Um, Marianne, I'm just wondering, have you, have you got any pets? Would you consider eating them if you were um, in the market to try out some, some, some dog? Would you, would you be prepared? Or is there a difference between eating your own dog and, and buying a, a slab of uh, beef from the supermarket? Uh, I have a cat, not a dog. Uh, I've got no desire to eat cats. Uh, I've actually got no desire to eat dogs, but I think it's illogical and it's a question of squeamishness and the sort of yuck factor rather than anything else because as I said before pigs are actually more intelligent than dogs and I'm quite happy to eat pork so I accept that there is some irrationality in in my own tastes. And, and so where does this um, come from then that we we sort of defend 
certain animals as kind of being beyond the slaughter and, and others not. I mean, you brought up animals. Um, I, I'm French in France. People eat horse. To, uh, you know, it's very normal. I think in the UK that's considered quite shocking still. Um, so why why the how do you justify those boundaries? Well, as I said, it's it's pretty irrational. Though I've eaten horse in France, and and I don't see any problem with that. Um, but I think once you form very close personal, I was going to say human, though, of course, it isn't. And we do anthropomorphize our pets a lot, I think. Once you c c form very close relationships with a particular animal, it becomes harder to, to, um, to conceive of eating, you know, another member of their species. Um, but I think a lot of it is anthropomorphizing, actually. Anybody want to come back on that point? Yeah. I think it's partly culture and partly nature. I mean, I think that, that Peter's right, Peter Egan's right, that dogs naturally kind of form companionships with us it's not it's not irrational to, to have dogs as pets um but then the differences between horses and cows that that is a cultural thing i suppose i visited the san horse sanctuary two days ago um in sussex and i could imagine <laughs> apart from the fact they're such huge creatures I can imagine having exactly the same relationship with the horses and the donkeys I met in this sanctuary as I might have with a cat or a dog. They are incredibly inquisitive, intuitive, and friendly. And if you allow them to be themselves, they come to you in exactly the same way as any other animal, certainly a dog or a cat would. Um, what is interesting, Mary, in terms of you choosing to eat pork and not worrying, not worried about eating pork, but would worry about eating cat. That's the very argument that one gets if you're in Southeast Asia and you try to convince people not to, to eat dogs or cats. And uh, the way they, that they are produced for food is quite horrendous. They say, well, you eat um, pigs or you eat beef or you eat chicken. What's the difference? Well, I, I, I wouldn't eat meat that was raised in horrendous conditions, but full stop, so. Mm. Um, so I, I need to move us on, if that's all right, to the future of our relationship with uh, animals. Uh, we know, of course, here, here in the West, there's a, a growing movement for veganism and organic farming uh, is a huge industry. Well, we know that hunting uh, is on the way out and it's increasingly frowned upon to uh, consume meat produced in uh, factory farming conditions. Um, but pets and zoos are still very popular. Um, and we know that in developing countries, the appetite for meat is growing. So the final question for the panel is, what is the future of our relationship with animals? Peter Singer. Well, when we're asked about the future, often uh, we project what we hope will be the future. And to some extent, I'm going to do this, I, you know, because I don't have a crystal ball. I don't really know what's going to be the future. But we are seeing... Uh, major developments and major investments going into producing uh, two kinds of products that could replace meat from animals. One is plant-based products. We already have many on the market that are manufactured to taste and have the kind of chewing feel and mouthfeel of meat. Um, and the other is meat grown at the cellular level, uh, sometimes called cultured meat. So where no, no animal is involved, you... Uh, can grow cells in uh, a factory in a nutrient solution. And we know that we can produce uh, meat, certainly uh, hamburger style meat uh, that way. And the people are working on fish and chicken. Uh, you know, maybe it'll take longer to get to the steak kind of texture. But um, these, these are both techniques that have the, the ability to 
replace meat from animals. Uh, at, the, at the moment, the problem is that they're not economically competitive. But uh, a lot of people think that they will get to that point where they will be economically competitive. Uh, it may take another decade or two. But if that happens, then I think we do have a real chance to eliminate factory farming, which we're all opposed to. And that would be a huge benefit in terms of reducing animal suffering and also in reducing climate change and the impact of agriculture uh, on, on the planet. So uh, I very much hope that that is the future. Uh, and I also think if that happens, it would liberate for many people uh, their attitudes to animals. Because at the moment, I think our attitudes to animals are somewhat constrained by the idea that, well, if you really take seriously the interests of animals, you're going to have to change your diet. Um, and if people are already realizing that they're actually not eating products from sentient animals, uh, that may make it easier for them to have genuine and universal concern for the interests of animals, not only for uh, dogs and cats and perhaps horses. Um, so, uh, Marianne, is that the, the future we should be aspiring to, meat-free, where it becomes taboo to uh, order uh, a steak? Well, I, I do say roll on cultured meat. I think that will be really helpful um, for the planet as well as for the animals. Um, I mean, already many more people are becoming vegetarian or vegan, at least in the developed world. And, and, and that's very good news for the planet and for climate change. And I think it's incumbent on the rest of us to eat less meat, at least for that reason. I think we should treat it more like a treat. Uh, but I think it's all, I think what will happen and what, we sh what should happen is that we, both as citizens and consumers, ought to put more pressure on the regulators, on governments, and on farmers themselves to treat farm animals more humanely. So that may be, like me, only buying free-range um, chicken and eggs, or it may be campaigning for changes in the law so that um, chickens have to be, not just chickens, but, you know, other farm animals too, have to be treated more humanely. I think that's the future. Uh, Peter Singer, should we be optimistic about this future that's uh, being laid out? Are we, are we thinking we're on, are we on the right route? Well, I think we in Western nations maybe are on the right route, but as somebody mentioned before, in um, other countries that are becoming wealthier, and China is obviously the great example, but other number of other countries as well, meat consumption is increasing. Um, and this is a real disaster for uh, animals and for the planet. And uh, that's the problem. And that particular problem, I think, could be solved by uh, producing economically the same products uh, or very similar products uh, that compete with animals. And therefore, um, there's no economic motive anymore for producing the animal products. Uh, Christopher, can I bring you in here? I mean, uh, feel free to respond to, to the points raised already. But also, when we talk about the economic dimension, um, is the economic impact of uh, going meat-free on the uh, developing world, on the communities who are uh, producing a lot of this meat, who are economically reliant on that income? Um, uh, are we taking into account the full picture here? Or, or, or is it actually in this case that we're only thinking about the impact on the animals and not the impact on the people who are farming them and relying on that income? Well, we need to think about impacts on people and on animals. Um, I, I think I'm much more pessimistic about the future than the people who've spoken so far. Um, it's not simply, I mean, if, if we're interested in eating meat, there will be some animals in the future. That's one thing. Um, what I'm concerned about are the animals, the animals that we don't care enough about, the animals that we can't use. They're the ones that 
watching David Attenborough, they're the ones that are in danger of going extinct. So there's a lot of concern we can have about animals um, and their lives and the amount of pain that has nothing to do with meat eating. And I think that um, we need to address, uh, it's, a, it's a matter of, it's a global problem. The, the size of the human population is, is, I think, a problem for the future of the world, for our future and for animal future as well. So I'm, I'm a gloomy person here. Regan. Um, well, certainly uh, the statistics say that meat-eating, with, even with the exponential growth of veganism, that meat-eating is increasing. And as Pete Singer said, it's increasing in China phenomenally, particularly in terms of the appetite for pig. Um, what I think is a bit of a misnomer is that people seem to believe that eating meat is cheaper than eating plant-based, but it's not. It makes it re huge amounts of our tax money is is um, used in investing in, in farming. Also, the, the ongoing destruction to the land and the planet that will have to at some time be readdressed is all part of the great cost of producing intensively um, produced meat. Um, so th 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 those things have to be addressed, I think. Nobody knows the real cost of what a kilo of beef or, or pork costs us really. We know what it costs in terms of the supermarket, but not how much it costs in terms of, of, of uh, government um, subsidy. Um, also, just a quick thing, Mary, in terms of getting um, meat that is organic or carefully grown, because we don't have careful labeling in the UK, it's all, you, you never really know what you are getting. And 99% of the meat that is produced is intensively produced, and there is a pretense that it is um, uh, organic or, or carefully produced. Um, and the final thing is the people who are actually making money out of all of this are not the farmers, because there are fewer and fewer farmers. There are only corporations. So the people who are making the, who are getting best, the best out of this are the corporations, not the farmers and not the public and certainly not the animals. Thank you. Uh, on that note, I want to thank my esteemed panel for uh, being with us today, for their contributions. Thank you, the audience, uh, also for joining us. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe, and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.